Hello, and welcome to Building Sustainability Podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Hart, aka Jeffrey the Natural Builder. Building sustainability consists of conversations with designers, builders, makers, dreamers, and doers, exploring the wide world of sustainability in the built environment by talking to wonderful people who are doing excellent things. Hello, welcome to episode 46. This week, we are talking to Flora from Plants and Colour. If this is your first episode, then welcome. Uh, please do subscribe and check out the other crafty episodes. Uh, you might like Kazingle talking about weaving willow coffins, Barn the Spoon talking about spoons, uh, and Kiko Denza just talking about sort of craft mentality in general. It's a quick intro today because, uh, yeah, I just wanted to cram in as much of this conversation with uh, Flora as possible. Just before the episode, I want to say Patreon, uh, thank you so much to the new subscribers in the last couple of weeks. Uh, we've got Sophie Bates Architects, checked out their website, really great. We've got Henrietta Dale, Edward Dale Harris, and the mighty Tom Ingle. Uh, thank you all so much for subscribing. Um, I hope you're enjoying the bonus content. And three of those people uh, have gone for the £5 option, meaning they will soon be receiving hand-carved wooden spoon for eating your breakfast with um, those spoons will be the first that i make when i get to my new home uh, in exmoor national park um so that's exciting thank you for being patient i'm a little bit all over the place at the moment uh trying to get everything organized and sorted and finished and design a house and say goodbye to some people anyway enough excuses uh what good news is i took some of my stuff down to exmoor the other day and where I'm going to be living while I build myself a house uh, is surrounded by birch and cherry trees, which are some of my favourites carve. So look forward to those. So speaking of, of moving, uh, this episode is the last one that I will record uh, in my wonderful little narrowboat barefoot. Uh, she's been my home for, for six years and yeah, I'm pretty sad to be to be leaving her. Uh, she's been a really great, great, great place to live. Uh, I've lived in quite a few different places on many canals and rivers. Um, spent some time bobbing around on the Thames, feeling very, very small. Um, so yes, I am. I am sad. I, I've, you know, it feels very good to be sort of part of part of her story, the barefoot story, um, and in sort of repair and, and keeping her going. And she's going to be just a really great home for her new keeper, Martha. Um, I'm really pleased that Martha's super lovely and, yeah, everything, it feels like everything's uh, come together nicely there. What else do I need to tell you about? Uh, oh, I wanted to say thank you so much to Flo, uh, Flo Hamer. Uh, she was uh, the star of our most popular episode, um, episode number 10 on building a tiny house. She is a super talented craftsperson and maker, and she has done a bite-sized episode, uh, the one just before this, uh, all about women in the workshop. Um, and it's a really good one. Uh, as part of that, she made a list of, of badass women uh, who work in workshops, and I added a few as well. And uh, yeah, obviously, as soon as I put out that list, I thought of 10 more um, so apologies if you were missed off the list, uh, but I mean, it's just fantastic that there's so many to choose from, isn't there? 
Uh, okay, well, I managed to waffle on for quite a long time, didn't I? Um, without further ado, here is the wonderful Flora uh, to tell you all about her work. I'm back at the end very briefly. Enjoy the episode. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, I have to try and find a way of describing what I do. Yeah, I find it... So what do I do? I don't know. I'm always resistant to labeling myself because mm-hmm. um, it always feels like I don't want to box myself into a to a job title. But um, I guess I see myself as a craftsperson and, a, um, and an educator. Mm-hmm. But I feel very lonely in terms of being a craftsperson. I feel like there's, I don't know, I don't quite feel like I deserve that title. <laughs> but, um, but... So I find it easier to just talk about specifically what I do in, in within the, the niche. So I okay. I make um, inks, dyes, and paints, and artist materials, art materials out of from plants. Um, and my work is in working with plants that I can grow or forage in the UK, and developing, exploring techniques for creating colour for textiles and paper, and so experimenting and developing techniques and then also sharing sharing and teaching and being part of a community where um i'm where we are making crafts open and accessible to everyone rather than the exclusive elite um knowledge base so mm-hmm. for me it's all about recommoning crafts and then kind of getting nerdy within my own niche of plant dyes and inks and paints and sharing that with other people who are interested in that brilliant getting nerdy about a very specific thing is what this podcast is all about yeah i love it (laughs) yeah and seems to be a lot at the moment of chatting to people on the internet all around the world who are really nerdy about the same thing who just we all just are in our own little cubby holes beavering away and then talk about niche very obscure plants and processes 
<laughs> that must be really exciting sort of around the world because of the different different plant types that are that are native like plants that you're like oh i wish it, that grew here yeah yeah i think um yeah it's always intriguing hearing about different plants and plants that are very difficult to grow here or you know um hard to find and then you hear i you know chat to people in the us and it's like they're like they're like invasive species that they have to go and pull up every year because there's so much of it and they're just growing in the wild and they <laughs> and it's just different um, different abundance different things that are abundant and then also different kinds of scarcities as well so yeah yeah and also like different approaches like you know i'll share a technique and then someone will go off and go to the apps push it to the absolute limits in ways i've never even considered and start kind of collecting mollusks from the beach or yeah it can I love that sharing the process with other people because then yeah they get interpreters and work with in ways that I'd never even imagined were possible yeah and it kind of goes on its own journey excellent I guess I mean it's quite exciting because I think of crafts uh, as kind of looking to how things used to be done uh, and they were all very sort of localized. And you, know, you'd, if you were making baskets, you were making baskets out of your local material that grew. Uh, you know, if you had willow, then you'd be making that. But if it was oak, then you'd be making an oak floor basket. But then this sort of, you know, this globalization and us chatting across the world, we're then introducing different crafts and different techniques to, to areas where they they weren't. So you're getting all this whole new cross pollination of of ideas. That's that's really exciting yeah absolutely and i i really feel strongly that i see that technology can help us to connect with the land rather than just detaching us from it and there are mm -hmm. ways that we can use technology to come together to learn skills that then can help us to build relationships with our local environment and um when i teach i like to teach recipes which are where you can interchange the ingredients so you learn a recipe but you can go out and find whatever's local to you to 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 um integrate into that recipe rather than just having to buy the ingredient that i use mm -hmm. um yeah because for me it's not about just yeah buying things in packets it's about yeah really learning how to engage with the land again and read the landscape and interact in a practical way and um, where plants become our things that we work with in our lives and not just pretty things. And why, why plants? What, what, what is it that, that draws you to, to working in this way? Yeah, I mean, that, God, I think that's, for me, it's not a rational thing. With I think it could have been anything. I think there's like approach to craft, which I think, which I talk about, which I see you could apply to most crafts, um, plant-based crafts or any crafts. But for me, I don't know. I think it's, I don't know why I'm drawn to plants. I just, I think they just, when I needed some kind of meaning to life and some kind of feeling of connection, it was the plants that, that were there, that were there that I connected with. And perhaps it's because they can't run away and that they're everywhere. And I love that they, that they are everywhere, but it's whether you, it's like not noticing what's there. Mm -hmm. And there's something in the, ma of the magic of starting to, yeah, like to, yesterday I was went for a walk and there were, we were I was having some chat a chat with my partner and, and his mother and I saw on the ground between us there were all these um, bucks 
buckthorn plantain plants just nestled in to the path. And I know that that's one of the most delicious kinds of plantain. And um, we were all just having a conversation around it. And I just took, I didn't, just noticing that and knowing and having that connection relationship with that plant just fills my life with so much richness of connection and belonging. And I mean, it could be, though, you could get the same kind of connection from learning about bird language or learning about earth pigments or learning about um, the sea or anything. But for some reason, for me, it's about plants. And that's just, I don't know. I'm just, maybe it's because I'm called Flora. I don't know why. I love plants. (laughs) It's been been implanted predetermined maybe i mean i think i love that you know that you can i can grow them as well there's something of this growing cycles and the seasons and what you can create within a growing season mm-hmm. and creating a garden something that i mean there's so much in life we can be so out of control i can feel so out of control but somehow with you know creating a garden wherever i've lived i've lived, moved house so much but i've always been able to create a garden and that creates that that's just there's something kind of deep make therapeutic perhaps or um comforting in that mm-hmm. and being able to do that yeah that's really interesting i was just thinking about you know the, the sort of seasonality of of getting colors from things i hadn't really sort of made that link i mean i guess nowadays fashion it's sort of rapidly changing throughout the whole year and you you've got your autumnal colors and you've got your summer colors but does that come from the the sort of dyes that are available at that time or is that is it just that we're trying to pair ourselves with the, the color of the leaves i think there's well, i think there's yeah there's two different things there is there there isn't there. i think there is something of, of wanting to wear the colors that are around us to be blend in with the season but yeah i mean different times of year i mean it's like just like foraging food i think it's so connected or herbal medicine we work with plants in any way you're wanting to harvest the part of the plant where the energy is at that time of year so in the you know, in the summer it's the flowers and the le and the leaves and the autumn it's the roots and the fruits and the winter it's the barks and then in the spring it's the leaves and you go round and round in circles and yeah there are you know I'd say in the autumn it's there's more browns and reds and and browns and reds and pinks and in the spring there's more greens from all the fresh leaves mm-hmm. and yellows. And in the summer, you get all the different colours of all the flowers, purples and pinks and blues. And, um, so there is, yeah, I'd say there is a sort of seasonal cycle to the colours. But I don't think it's so def- clearly cut and defined. Yeah. I, well, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, sort of the history of, of dyes. I guess I'm interested in sort of the history and the stories around colour. Yeah, I mean, I... I came into natural dyes through through an interest in permaculture and foraging. So my interest starts with the plants and with a connecting with the plants, which then moved into the dyes. So I, I have an interest in the history, but I wouldn't say that I'm an expert in the history of dyes. But um, I definitely am interested in that. In, um, and I'm interested in our... our how our relationship with colours has changed since the advent of synthetic dyes because before synthetic dyes and paints when when we're now obviously like every colour is available to us 
and each every color has equal value. You just buy a set of paints, and they're all in their colors, and and they're just they just all they the only meaning to them is the color. Whereas in the part with um with natural colors, whether that's earth pigments or mineral pigments or plant dyes, every color has its own unique story of where that has come from and the embodied energy and how different colors have different different processes of where they've come from and have different value to them in terms of the amount of energy and scarcity. And so those colours had different meanings in society. And if you wore if you're blue or a purple, then that's a sign of high status because those colours are so difficult to achieve. Um you know, coming from lapis or from indigo or from or from mollusks. They're very scarce and energy intensive sources compared to browns and yellows and um, beige colours that would have been easily accessed easily created through plants in the hedgerow. And that other dimension to colour where you know, we're in science in school today we're just taught about the colour wheel and you learn how to mix colours. But with plant based colour it just doesn't work like that. There's as there's chemistry at play with with um pHs and metals that you work with when making dyes and inks and paints, which means that often if you mix it, two colours together, you're not going to get a logical colour you'd mix because it may be that there's a pH shift or there's a metal that's that's altering the colour. And so there's so much more nuance. Um, I love that in Chinese, traditional Chinese textiles, you, you often is, is used as indigo for blue and rurum chinensis, Chinese rhubarb, for yellow. And what I find fascinating is if you dye your fabric blue first with the indigo and then you dye your fabric, over dye your fabric with the Chinese rhubarb roots, then you'll get a, um, which is yellow, you'll get a green. But if you dye your, your fabric yellow first with the rhubarb roots and then you dye your fabric blue with the indigo, you'll actually get gold because of the chemical reaction, the dye vat that reacts with the rhubarb root, you get a completely different colour. So there's uh, kind of mysterious processes that are playing with our ideas of of the colour wheel and how colours should blend and mix. And um, It kind of means, and I love that the complexity of that, because it means that there's no, although you can play, there are general rules. Everything, every interaction is unique and, you just have to get stuck in and try everything out. Does this mean that the idea of this, the colour wheel, is that quite a modern idea? Because if before we were getting our, our colour from plants and they were having these interesting reactions? Um, I'd say no, because I'd say that with, as I imagine you experience in your work, if you're working with earth pigments, it does work logically because they aren't reactive. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Well, in that case, let's define the different types of, of sort of pigment, you know, ways of, of, of creating colour, I guess. Well, there's earth pigments, which is basically like clays. And then there's also minerals mm-hmm. like metal salts, ochres that give, that give colours. I mean, earth Earth pigments are mostly clays because they're easier to work with, but there are harder rocks with more precious colours that are worked with. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm not going to give any other sources of natural colour, but there are. 
And then when did um, synthesizing, when did that sort of come in? That happened in the 1800s. So with the advent of the Industrial Revolution. Um, and that's, that's you know, become pretty much the, the prominent thing now, right? Yeah, that has become dominant, completely dominant. Um, and because in natural processes are so much more, the dyeing particularly and paint making are so much more labour intensive and energy intensive, the synthetic paint, paints and dyes have dominated massively. Mm-hmm. So, well, first of all, I wanted to say to you, the, uh, when you used to live in Bristol, did you ever head out to Wick, where there's the an old, is it an iron? What's it? It's a, it's a now nature reserve, but it's got the most beautifully coloured soil. Have you got some there? This. Yes, there you go. That's the stuff. Yeah, I've I've only really I've I've only really recently started working with earths and mm-hmm. ochres. I've um because I've mostly stuck with plants, but over the in the past two years I've started working more and more with earths because I'm becoming more drawn to work making art materials, artist materials and I've been making crayons and paints and I've been exploring earths in Devon and yeah I was actually given this jar of this pigment this earth from Wick by somebody in Bristol. Um, it's an amazing colour, isn't it? Um, it's so iron rich. Yes. So, um, so what's that? That's what's going on in that in that little sample there. What's creating that colour? This is it's an ochre, which is a which is an iron oxide. Uh-huh. And some ochre, some so some iron oxides are, are interesting from a dye perspective because they because of the iron content. They work as a reactant with the dyes because if you, because a lot of dyes contain tannins. So oak gall tannin is the most um, commonly used kind of tannin, but a lot of tree barks and um, woody plant materials are high in tannins. And tannins have a, a, a relationship with iron oxide where you can, if you combine iron oxide with a tannin, you get black. Um, so there are some traditional methods of creating prints and patterns on fabric by printing with with a mud printing with the iron rich muds and then you dye your fabric and those areas react with the dye to create blacks mm-hmm. and you can do that with ink as well you can I paint with with a plant-based ink and then if you paint over the top with an iron with an iron oxide then wherever you wherever the two overlap you'll get Blacks emerging, and it can be like invisible ink if you're using very, very pale tannins and very pale iron oxides. But then, when they combine, a colour appears that was wasn't previously visible. Fantastic! It's um, it's a thing that seems to be all the rage in the, the sort of green woodworking world at the moment is uh, ebonizing. They they call it uh, you know, woods that have high tanning contents. You know, washing over with a a sort of iron-rich solution, and then yeah, seeing it it turn black in front of your eyes, it's uh, it's quite a, a sort of magic thing. Yeah, it's really satisfying, and I I love that when you know I work with a plant and I dye some fabric and it's like, you know, just like really pale beige or something. You think, ah, oh, it's nothing here. It's not, and then if you add let's say paint on it with iron or something, and suddenly an image emerges, and it's so reactive though iron oxide it can be demoralising and you get 
contaminated iron all over me. <laughs> it can get everywhere so easily. I tend to think I have a perspective. My perspective is though that you can get a colour out of any plant if you work with it with iron because iron will always find the tannins and draw out some kind of colour, even if it's quite a dull colour. Yeah. You, that sort of makes it sound like you feel like that's cheating a little bit. Yeah, well, it's just not so interesting because it's quite. Yeah, I think it. I don't know. Is it cheating? It can be. I can sometimes. I feel like it's a cop out. Could be a bit of a cop out always to, because you just end up with loads of greys and be like, wow, look at all these colours I've made, but they'd all be grey and black. Yeah. Um, but it can be interesting with, let's say, um, I found with nettles with iron, and sometimes it's surprising you get greens or like more interesting colours. Yeah. But I like that combining the earths with the plants. And it seems like a, a wonderful thing, doesn't it? You've got plants that are growing in earth to then, you know, take the plant, make something, you know, a pigment out of it and then add the earth back in. You're sort of bringing it back to its you know, its state of you know, being alive again, the two, two sort of elements there, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Let's talk specifically about dyeing, I guess, for a little bit. Yeah. I mean, what sort of things can be dyed and what you know is there anything that that works particularly well or doesn't and you looking at what sort of fibers i guess yeah yeah i think well it's every fiber takes color differently and i think it's the key to dyeing is really knowing what you're working with and tuning the process specifically to those materials um and there are all materials have their own limitations of sensitivities to certain um, metals or absorbencies so the easiest so obviously you can't you can only dye with natural dyes natural materials you can't dye synthetic fibers so Uh you can dye um, wool silk cotton linen flax metal hemp any kind of um, natural fibers you can dye wood and um, but there's and generally i divided the materials into two categories i have the animal based fibers so the wool and silk mostly and then i have cellulose fibers so any plant based fibers and that uh, that would include wood as well as cotton and linen mostly that i work with um i divide those because i mean it's they're fundamentally different the protein based or cellulose based fibers take the take the the, the color differently and the colour bonds a lot more easily to protein-based fibres. So if you're wanting good results quickly and easily, then I always suggest working with protein-based fibres to start with. There are things you can use to make the dyes work well on cellulose fibres. So we always use a mordant, which is a bit of jargon, which basically means a fixative. And mm. But it's more than that. A mordant helps the the dye to attach onto the fibres. So it comes from the French word, originally Latin word for to bite. And it's to do with the dye bonding and attaching to the fibres. And um, the most commonly used fixative mordant is um, aluminium. And aluminium has a particular relationship with with pigments where aluminium will bond and attach to pigment particles so if I was just to add, say, aluminium salts, aluminium sulfate into my dye pot, I would find in the bottom of my dye pot a sediment of dye that would have sunk and kind of just sat on the, sit on the bottom of the dye pot. 
which wouldn't be very isn't very useful to me because what I want is the dye to attach the fiber. So the trick is you use you treat the fabric with the aluminium, and then you submerge the aluminium the fabric in the dye pot, and then the dye attaches to the aluminium, but the aluminium is already bonded with the fibers. So then you get a strong bond where the aluminium is acting as a kind of glue between the dye and the fabric. Aha. Um, so there's various different types of aluminium mordant that you use, whether for if you're using a cellulose dye or a um, protein-based dye, that's slightly different. There's new, new mordant, natural mordants being developed every year. I hear about a different kind of. I've heard about aluminium lactate and aluminium acetate, aluminium sulfate. There are a lot of different kind of variations of aluminium-based fixatives. I often use Simplocus, which is a completely plant-based source of aluminium, which is a, a tree that grows in Indonesia, and the leaves are th contain 3% aluminium. And it's been used as a fixative for thousands of years. And the, I buy these leaves, these ground-up leaves from a workers' cooperative in Indonesia, and I pre-treat my fabric with the extract of the leaves and that works as an aluminium-based fixative. But you can also use it to extract pigments. So as I mentioned at the start, how I added the aluminium, if you add the aluminium, it sinks the pigment to the bottom. You can um, you combine that with an alkali, it will then separate the pigment out of the dye and you can filter out the pigment and then essentially you can then grind up the pigment and you have a... Um, powdered pigment that you can use for um, paint making, for watercolour paint making or uh, print making. Just gone off on a ramble, I can't remember what, what, yeah, <laughs> where that, I was going. <laughs> uh, we're talking about uh, mordants. Is, is vinegar a mordant? Yeah, so well, vinegar isn't, I'd admit vinegar is an assist in the way that it helps to draw the colour out. So okay. often I use vinegar for, for some dyeing techniques to draw the, the colour out of plant materials, but it's not going to help the colour to fix so um, tannins are often used as a fixative. Um, you can use um, oxalic acid from rhubarb leaves. That's another natural fixative. Or I use citric acid. So, I, yeah, I use a natural tannic tannin acid mordant with citric acid and tannin. Or I use the aluminium-based mordant from the Simplocus leaves. Or I use um, the um, aluminium sulfate or aluminium acetate, which are more refined Mineral-based mordants that, I mean, I love using just natural mordants, but sometimes I do use those more, those refined minerals. Because uh -huh. um, it just makes it easier for more complicated printing processes and print or needing or dyeing cellulose fibers, um, some colors. A really good mordant, natural mordant that everyone has in their garden is rhubarb leaves, which are poisonous, but they can work really well for, um, creating soft colours. So I'm presuming you're not rubbing rhubarb leaves on you know, a thing you want to, to colour. Are you what what's the process? There? You boil up the rhubarb leaves and then you strain off the leaves so you end up with the kind of extract and then you submerge your fabric, simmer your fabric in that solution for for an hour. Uh -huh. You just have to make sure you don't breathe it in because it's quite toxic. Uh -huh. Something so delicious so toxic yeah it's full of oxalic acid rhubarb i mean rhubarb is quite a poisonous plant really yeah i mean you can eat the, st the stems in the spring but it's pretty i think it, i see rhubarb as quite a marginal marginal edible plant really it's 
mostly poisonous. Yeah. It's curious, our perspective on plants, how we all eat commonly a plant like rhubarb that's pretty poisonous. And then we have so much fear of other plants that aren't nearly as poisonous as rhubarb. Mm-hmm. I think often our view of plants is more cultural than actually based on the practical reality of if, if it's really poisonous or not. Yeah. Um, so were you saying oxalic acid there was the rhubarb leaf? Yeah. So my the only time I've come across that is when I've been timber framing, uh, so working with high tannin woods like a chestnut or, a, or an oak. When I work the, the timber with, with a, a sort of a tool, usually steel, I get black marks occurring, which is the reaction between the, the tannins and the steel. I've then used oxalic acid. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Just sort of washing on a solution of it, and that makes the black marks go away. Mm. So what's what's happening there? Because I always, I mean, to me that was about as magic as as it could be. <laughs> that seeing the black marks disappear. So sorry, I'm asking you a question, maybe outside of your your realm here. But. No, yeah, I mean, I I don't know exactly the chemistry. I'm not a chemist, but I do work do similar work with similar processes. Um, in terms of using acids to burn away, to burn away colour, um, I have I don't I tend to use citric acid more than oxalic acid. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, often with if I dye a piece of fabric a colour, and then I'll make a print paste with citric acid combined with some kind of binder, and I'll print or paint onto the fabric, and wherever I paint, it'll burn away the colour, and I'll have a um, a pattern. It's called a discharge, a discharge dye process. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I use the same methods, but yeah, with a different kind of acid. But I mean, it's the thing. Ultimately, it's just we're all working with the same chemistry, aren't we? And the same yeah. materials, but for different outcomes. We'll be back after a quick break. Hey there, I'm Mick from the Mick and Pat Show. That's right, and I'm Pat. Looking for a podcast that's like catching up with old friends? Well, you're in luck. We're here to bring you weekly doses of lifestyle commentary, discuss culture and politics, and top it off with the occasional beer and film reviews. But it's not just about us. We're a community. Our listeners are our kin, and we let you all have a say in what we discuss. So saddle up and join the conversation at The Mick and Pat Show. You can check out our website or find us wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, uh, I feel like I've sort of taken you off on a, a sort of random, uh, <laughs> maybe a cul-de-sac there. Um, what? Uh, what? I mean, what's the the process of? So you've got a few different plants. Is it always that you're you're sort of boiling up those plants to release the color? Is there uh, different processes for different plants? Yeah, so there's, ge- there's sort of generic processes that generally work, and then there are outlying plants that have their own kind of idiosyncrasies. Mm-hmm. But it's a bit like I see it as a bit like um, mostly a bit like making teas, herbal teas, in that you work, I work with the same logic where if you're brewing up some leaves or flowers, you'll be very gentle and just do a little amount of heat. Whereas if you're brewing up roots and barks, then you'll boil them for a while and steep them overnight and give them a lot of heat. And it's the same, really the same kind of approach and extracting most plants into water using heat and just adjust, adjusting the heat to the kind of plant material 
and their sensitivity to heat. With the, you know, the main, main exception is indigo, mm-hmm. which, um, which is different in that indigo, indigo isn't present in any plants, but the precursors for indigo are present in many different plants around the world. But, and curiously, none of these plants are related to each other. They're all, you know, in completely different plant families. And you extract the indigo through a process of, of steeping the fabric, the, the, the leaves in, in water and then oxidizing the leaves and adding alkali and then you can separate the pigment. But it's a, it's a pigment which then needs to be processed again in order to make a dye through a bat, bat dyeing process. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but that's the mo- one exception. Everything else tends to work by the same, by the same kind of process of extraction. But not all dyes work well with the same mordant. So whenever I'm trying a new plant, I always try it with at least two different kinds of mordant in order to see which work which work well with that plant. So it's lots of trial and error. And often it's, you know, I'll work with a plant in the spring and it'll give me a certain amount of colour and then I'll have a client say, oh, I work with that plant, but a different time of year or in a different kind of eco, in a different part of the world. And they would have got, and they will have created a completely different colour. So um, it can be you know, so many different vary, varying factors in terms of, say, the pH of your water or the pH of, and the or the mineral content in the soil where it's growing and the time of year that you harvest it. And if the plant is um, in leaf or in flower, or it's um, there's so many different variables. But ultimately, it's quite the process is quite simple. Uh-huh. I, I'm sort of picturing you know, all these different uh, variables, you know, creating this whole whole spectrum of colours. And then, yeah, you know, what we were talking about earlier about how sort of now global we sort of globalise these sort of techniques, but yeah, everything is taking on its own unique individual characteristics and keeping it a very sort of local specific thing. I, I really think that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, and the colours of that particular place and the plants that grow in that place, and I think it's, yeah, there's something I find wonderful about. You know, I work with often with artists who uh, do create artwork that's landscape art, artwork that's very much depicting a place, and then when they start to create their paints using the plants that are also in that landscape to paint with the people who came in the course of me was doing this year-long study drawing this oak tree and then she went out and she made the oak ruling with the, the balls from that particular tree and then there's all these drawings of the tree with the ink made from that tree and they feel so much more honest in a way to the place and to the and to be of that place rather than just kind of depicting the place but with alien materials mm-hmm. just like I imagine if you build a house with materials of that place compared to materials from the other side of the world exactly yes there's all this sort of interconnectedness um the, mm. someone i spoke to on the podcast described sort of building with your local materials as as just landscape reconfigured uh mm. and i feel that's very much the same with what, what you're describing there and that i really like that sort of woven connectedness mm. yeah and that thing as well with to have to go through the practice of sourcing those materials and creating them, you 
to get to know that place so much more deeply. So it means that whatever you then create from those materials is going to be so much more considerate and connected to that place just also by yeah how you have means you've gone there much many more times and um looked much more closely at at that place Mm -hmm. interacted with it yeah it's really honoring the place isn't it and yeah yeah the the nature involved and i like that and i well i especially like that interacting and you know getting you're starting to look much more sort of focused on on what's around you and I, I feel the same about foraging like once you start foraging you start when you go for a walk you look at the world in a different way you, you're examining it in a, a sort of more you see everything as a potential thing that you could eat uh, and that needs to be found out about and I imagine it's it's very similar with what you're doing yeah well it's yeah absolutely it's um yeah deeply connected in that way and I I enjoy as well that it's not, and it doesn't mean you have to be in a pristine, natural environment in order to have interesting results. Yeah, I used to live in Bristol and there there were loads of, there's a huge abundance of buddleia that grows in industrial estates, which is a fantastic plant to die with. And there's loads of brambles, which are really great to die with, they're really high tannin content. there was I found just as much abundance in the urban environment and it was also become an interesting practice in the urban environment to to seek out those kind of places those the wayside edges that um that of abundance that are overlooked and um yeah I find that I found that actually also I think is something of being in the city and how when you're in the countryside, you're constantly surrounded by nature, and it's become it's less important. I find it's find it's kind of less important to have to go out foraging because you're just surrounded by nature all the time. But I remember being in the city, how important it was to me to go out and find those old places and find those plants because that was my medicine to help with my own well-being as well as me gathering my materials for my work. So it works in both the urban context and as well in the countryside. Yeah. And people's garden, there's so much diversity in the, in cities with the kind of plants people grow in their gardens and what is what is available. There was um so uh, we we first met at uh, at the studio which we very briefly shared. I think you were just moving out as I moved in, but um yeah, there was a little space out the out the front of the studio which uh, well I made a a cob sculpture with uh, with Emma Emma Colville. Uh, a very talented sculptor uh, and we placed it out sort of in I think it was in September or November we placed it out on this little uh, space out the front of the studio and then the following spring it was just surrounded by these really tall woad plants that yeah that apparently were I think you'd planted yeah uh, and it was so fantastic oh, sorry your sculpture was hidden by my oh, plants no no it was nestled <laughs> in there it was beautiful i got lots of photos of it yeah um yeah those big yellow flowers yeah yeah and so so that was the thing that you you planted on purpose to to have a a sort of material stock i guess yeah so um yeah when i was in bristol i had a garden um i had a larger dye garden out in brislington but because i was running workshops and i like to grow a few plants in that bed out front to be able to show everybody the different plants mm-hmm. 
And I was surprised as well in that small bed. I was growing, I was able to get, you know, I was growing a lot of coreopsis in that bed and I was amazed by even in that small bed. It, I think it was very sheltered as well. It's very sheltered down in there. It was a real sun trap. And I remember the flowers, I could harvest them all the way through until November. They're here and now I'm, I'm out in Devon. I think the plants die back in October, much earlier. Yeah. It was a very productive little patch of... <laughs> Yes, I like the idea of uh, you know if you've got your your garden growing growing veg, sort of interspersing the you know the the plants that are maybe useful for for different reasons. So your your dyes and your your pigments seems like a much more holistic uh, approach to growing. Yeah, yeah. I also like to grow herbal medicines, and there's a big overlap between herbs, medicinal herbs, and dye plants. And yeah, I think there's something of how it wasn't that long ago that we would have been much more generalists in the way that we lived and the way that we were as craftspeople and we would have had plants that had many different uses that we would, would have grown and now we've become much more specialised. Yeah, I like to I like to consider that the plants, well with dye plants, I like to consider what other uses they have and particularly dye plants that have medicinal properties to consider how those properties will affect the cloth and how if you're wearing clothes that are close to your body how you, know, you want those to be clothes that are dyed with plants that are medicinal and good for your skin and have in, contain insect repellent and rather than toxic chemicals or poisonous plants or yeah being considering uh, as much as it's become trendy to consider in food you know people think a lot about organic food and where does your food come from but it's taking a little bit longer to think the same thing around our clothes and to put to realise and put two and two together that our clothes are also mostly from plants or from from animal fibres, just like our food or animals, just like our food is, and to um, to consider that in a in the same way. I think what's what's the what would be a good uh, insect repellent to be uh, dyeing your plant uh, clothes with? I mean, for for you know, lavender is the obvious one for for moths um, mm-hmm. or any kind of aromatic. Herbs you could use sage or thyme or oregano. Um, these kind of aromatic plants that are antimicrobial, antifungal, um, would have beneficial be beneficial to to wear those. But you, know, you have to be careful because not all plants are good for you. So um, ivy leaves are a skin irritant, and it's a you've got to be careful as well with foraging because you have plants like hogweed and giant hogweed that would be really harmful if you. Started trying to make dyes from them, so it's not all um, not all plants are safe. But. Yeah, that, that's sort of one of those. It's a sort of common uh, misconception in in sort of my work in natural building. It's you know it's natural, therefore it's safe. It's like wow, you know, a lot of very poisonous things are natural. It's it's not a one size fits all uh, statement. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, it's complex and also it's nuanced as well of what is poisonous because often there's many think, ingredients that are poisonous but you only need to, pro- need to process them in very simple ways and then they become safe very safe to use mm-hmm. um, but it's funny I find it curious the way that you know potatoes which is one of our sta- staple ingredients that we eat we all eat almost every day is a very poisonous plant 
that we all have to make sure we boil in order to make safe. But there are many other native plants or fungi that need similar processing, but they're labelled as deadly poisonous and you must not eat them and touch them. We need some some cultural shift, don't we? Yeah, I think (laughs) I take great pleasure from using those plants and seeing people's horror. Oh, it's all right. (laughs) Trying to break some of those taboos. (laughs) Excellent. Um, So I wondered if you could talk us through, I I sort of, what I'm hoping is that we could sort of go through the process of dyeing something, Mm. uh, maybe with a, you know, something that's commonly available to to most people that are going to be listening uh, in the hope that they listen to this and then, and then they're going to go and go and dye something. Okay. What about bud deer? That's quite a common one. Everyone can probably get hold of. Yep. Okay. Let's go for that then. Okay. Yeah, Budlia is one of my favourite dye plants. It gives a bright yellow colour. And although yellow is the most common colour you can achieve through natural dyeing, a lot of different plants give yellow. I think Budlia is really worthwhile to work with because the Budlia flowers, which you get the colour from, are so abundant. You can harvest them um, so easily and so quickly from uh, those kind of wayside, forgotten about edges in cities and urban areas and there are so there are so abundant that you can harvest a good amount and not be neglecting um neglecting the needs of bees and butterflies and um you you don't need a large amount to get a bright color as well so and you'll notice if you start picking the flowers that your hands will start to turn yellow and you'll and you know, it doesn't matter whether they're the pink flowers or the, or the purple flowers or the yellow flowers or the white flowers, they all give this yellow dye. That That's interesting. Yeah, it's quite intriguing that. And if you look at any of the coloured flowers, of the bubblier flowers, they all have a kind of yellow inner. But if you mush up the flowers in your hand, it turns, it all turns yellow. And your hand will turn yellow. Uh-huh. Um, it's curious. Because then you have the opposite thing where you have St John's Wort, which is a yellow flower and if you mush it up in your hands it turns purple so <laughs> yeah there's magic going on isn't there i love it serious thing but um <laughs> yeah so i tend to collect you know, a bucket of badly flowers i mean when i'm dyeing mm. fabric i tend to do um measure everything by weight so i tend to do like same weight dye stuff to fabric but um often if i'm just world crafting if i'm collecting plants foraging for plants and using fresh plants and i'll just i won't bother measuring i'll just pick a load um and just have a go and have a play it's it's um i mean it's only really important to measure if you want to be able to replicate your results it's you don't have to mm-hmm. measure things so you can just collect a bucket of the flowers and then i put pour boiling water on them i use a a pan, a stainless steel pan, and I add water and simmer the flowers for an hour. And there's so much colour coming out of them. You can even, um, if you want to see when you've got all the colour out, you can take out, strain out your dye pot, take the flowers and put them into fresh water and see if more colour comes out or whether uh-huh. that's it. That's a good way to see whether you've got any colour out. Um, and you can do that multiple times if more and more colour keeps coming out. And often with Budley, that's the case. Yeah. So it, um, because of that, it's good when you start extracting to not 
to not completely, you know, to just add enough water to submerge your plant material, not to use loads and loads of water, because then if you do multiple extractions, you're not ending up with like loads and loads of buckets of water. And when, um, quick question, uh, when you're saying the flowers, are we talking uh, which, which, which part, uh, where, do, where do we draw the line of, of flower? Is it petals? Is it, uh, you know, if we get some stem in there? Yes, yeah, so the buddleia, it has these pendulous flower heads. So I just break off the whole, the whole flower head. Snap, I just snap it off. I don't bother okay. separating it. I don't think it matters if there's stem or leaf. You know, if you get some stem and leaves in there, it doesn't matter at all. Um, I'm for okay. um, pragmatic, time-saving practices. You can easily leave it. Because <laughs> it's already so time-consuming and labour-intensive. So Yeah. Let's just be quite rough with it. And Great. I like that. You'll get a good colour. doesn't matter if you've got some leaves in there or um, bits of stem. Okay. Yeah. So so when you so you extract your plant material and so you I basically just, the simplest way is just to simmer the flowers in water for, for an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you need to prepare your fabric and yellows work well generally with a aluminium based fixative mm-hmm. and there's just so many different sources of aluminium based fixative if, basically if you're working with a cotton or a linen then you want to use an aluminium acetate and if you're working with a um, wool or a silk which is a protein then you use an aluminium sulfate and um I mean, there's many, if you want to do it, as as many different instructions online for making aluminium mordants. But ultimately, you just dissolve 10% to the weight of your fabric. So if you have 100 grams of fabric, you want to weigh out 10 grams of your mordant and then dissolve it in hot water, enough water to put your fabric in, mm-hmm. and then submerge your fabric in that water for an hour or overnight. With aluminium acetate, sometimes I soak my fabric in for a week, but at least an hour as a minimum. Mm-hmm. And then you, and you, there's all sorts of safety. Um, you'd be careful. I mean, there's, you know, so with the aluminium based mordant, because you're working with a powdered, um, a powdered metal salt, you need to be really careful about inhaling the powder or getting it on your hands. So I recommend wearing gloves and a mask when you're handling the powder. Um, so, uh, yeah, so there's definitely safety issues with using the aluminium mordant. That's why I like to use the Simplocus or the natural acetin tannin mordant most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you want to pre-treat your fabric with the mordant, and then you can either take your fabric out and just dry it for use at another time, or you can take your fabric out of the mordant and then just immediately put it into your, into your dye. Into your fabric dye. Uh, so it doesn't have to to dry out. The the fabric doesn't need to have, have reached that dry point. No, no. There are some processes where it does, but with these mordants, it doesn't matter. You can just go straight into your mordant. Um, and there's no. It's kind of one of those things. I think I'm finding it hard to talk it through because it's one of those things where it can be as complicated or as simple as you want it to be. Like in terms of pre-treatment phase it pre-treatment and um, scouring to remove any um, pre-treatments you might have in the fabric and then there's 
because for cellulose fabric, you can add protein into the fibers to help the fibers take the color better. And then you can mold it and, and make sort of pre soaking. And it can, something can either, there are some dye processes that are only one stage, and there are some dye processes that are like seven or eight stages. Mm-hmm. And the more stages you do, often it means you get more, more likely to get even colors and deeper colors. But I think it's good to start out with quicker, more simple processes, even if you're not going to get as good results, just because I think yeah. it's good to start out with something that's not so complicated. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, I mean, mordanting is really important, I think, to get bright colors, but it's not essential. You know, you can just toss your fabric in without having mordanted, but you just won't get such deep, vibrant colors. Okay. Um, so then, I mean, the, the, the step that we're i'm assuming sort of getting to is that we then just get our fabric and and pop it in our in the bubble yes so you take the fabric out the mordant and you put it in the in the dye it's important that your fabric is always wet when you put it in the dye so if you're putting it straight from the mordant then great it's already wet but if it's been dried then you must wet it again for a good amount of time because fabric um absorbs water quite unevenly when it's dry like if you it kind of doesn't just absorb it all at once. It will like slowly take it in from certain points in the fabrics and you'll get unevenness. But if the fabric's wet, then it just takes the dye evenly. Uh-huh. And then you'll leave your fabric in the dye, simmer your fabric in the dye for an hour, leave it to soak overnight. And then you can take your fabric out and dry it, rinse it and dry it. And you can... You know, we've spoken earlier about iron and I've spoken about acids and alkalis. And you can, in the dye pot or afterwards, add acids or alkalis or iron oxide to the dye or to the fabric. And that will shift and alter the colour. And that, and your fabric, your naturally dyed fabric, will always be sensitive to pH and will always be sensitive to iron at any point so even if you had your your dyed fabric for a year and you you wanted to change the color you could treat it with a modifier to change the color at any stage oh really that's interesting so it's important to um, wash your fab- your naturally dyed fabrics in ph neutral soap otherwise they're particularly um you know some dyes are very sensitive which i'd say aren't particularly good makes them means they're not particularly good dyes so let's say red cabbage is a really fun plant to work with because it's so sensitive to ph you can get pinks or blues but it means it's not a very practical plant to use but an interesting one for trying out and learning about reactants because it's so reactive to if you put a little bit of lemon juice in or a little bit of baking soda then it will change the color oh that's fascinating well i hope that's um that's given people listening a uh a little project to take on yeah i think the best way to learn is just to have a go yeah nice so i've, I've got some so color related questions which sort of probably should have come earlier on but uh uh they're coming now so <laughs> i mean first of all what's your favorite color <laughs> oh that's a difficult question i really like deep Deep greeny blue, like kind of, yeah, that really deep, rich, emeraldy green blue. Color. Yeah. And how how would you be making that? Um, I really like if 
dyeing fabric with yellow onion skins mm -hmm. and then dyeing that fabric with indigo afterwards. And I think it's because it's not, uh, it's because the yellow onion skins gives a kind of bright orange, which then goes in the indigo and then it gives this quite complex greeny blue that's really deep and rich. Nice. Oh, great. I like that. That's my favorite. That's, I mean, whenever I have to paint uh, anything, I always default to a sort of uh, greeny blue. My boat is greeny blue, uh, you know, sort of tealy, sagey, I guess is the, the color. Anyway, now I'm rambling. Um, <laughs> uh, what, um, are there any really surprising reactions? I mean, I was certainly surprised by uh, the reactions in avocados. Mm, yeah, avocados are interesting. Um, yeah, and I mentioned the St John's wort that I, is interesting in the way the yellow flowers give a purple dye. Yeah, I, one of the surprising reactions I love is um, dahlia flowers. If you have dark purple dahlia flowers, if you um, use a aluminium-based fixative, you can get this bright green dye from the purple flowers, and the dye will look purple, but the fabric comes out green from the purple dye. Wow. Yes. That's really interesting. It does seem like there's a lot of, I mean, I think people would have called it magic, but, you know, there's there's reactions going on that are, are sort of complicated and wonderful that really make this a, a sort of interesting and deep topic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why I feel I'm so drawn into it is because it's infinitely complex in terms of the, combina the com infinite combinations of plant and fabric and different kind of fixatives or mordants and then working and starting to make art materials as well and how different mm -hmm. ways of making crayons or pastels or inks or paints it's kind of endless play opportunities oh, what what's the the process for the say the crayons i was looking at those on your instagram which is a just a wonderful uh like color explosion yeah um, yeah it's um Really, I'm really maybe it's. I mean, I love the dyeing process, but it's all they're all so lengthy and involved, and I'm drawn to creating art materials because of just that immediacy of just drawing a color on a on a piece of paper. Um, yeah. But yeah, well, generally, yeah, with the crayons, um, I'm making pigments from either earth pigments or making lake pigments, which is when you precipitate a dye into it and create a pigment from a dye. Or some ground up plant materials that work particularly well, and then mixing that with with wax to make crayons. It's pretty fairly yeah. simple process. The the the, the, um, the challenge is, is identifying the the pigments, finding the right kind of pigments, and creating creating the pigments and preparing them so that they work well in the crayons if people are interested in in learning more i mean we've obviously just just touched the surface and uh, and i think by knowing a little bit i now know that it's incredibly complicated <laughs> and, and there's so many different you know variations so how how can people learn more is there some sort of good resources for that yeah so 
I mean, there's I run online courses, so I've got various online courses which are all accessible for beginners, but also there are some which are give more complicated build you can build your skills and go into more complicated processes in natural dyeing and printmaking, ink and paint making and now crayon making. Um, so I can offer some support and guidance in that way. Um, I also have a little, have a club of people who've done an online course with me and we get together online once a month and just chat about kind of like a study group and we chat about what we've been up to and a peer group really to share ideas because it's all, it's so niche and there's, you know, most of us aren't, don't live next door to people who are also nerdy about the subject. So we just, get together on the internet and chat about it um there's also loads of great books out there for um for people who want to learn more so i always recommend jenny dean jenny dean's book called wild color which is um, a great guide if you want to grow dye plants it has loads of just goes through it very thoroughly with images of plants, information about the plants and samples of the colours the plants give. And a lot of those plants are native to the UK or plants that you can grow easily. I have a copy right here. You have a copy. Really good. Yeah, yeah. that's the one. Yeah, I, I have lots of colour swatches. and uh, yeah. yeah, I'm a bit dyslexic, so I like books with loads of pictures and colours and not too much writing. <laughs> that's a good one. And then if you want to go a bit deeper, there's a book called um, The Art and Science of Natural Dyes by Joy Boutrop and Catherine Ellis. And that's quite a bit more technical and goes into the chemistry and has um, more complex processes for for, um, printing and dyeing. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's like level two. Um, Okay, well, I think, I mean, is there anything that we should talk about that I've missed? Oh, I do have a question. So, oh, yeah? uh, so I've seen a lot of people dyeing uh, or colouring. So, in my world, colouring plaster with mm. uh, turmeric and things like that. Mm. And they're very, very excited, and they go, "Look at this wonderful wall!" And then, uh, in a, an amount of time, it's all faded out. Yeah. Um, is that just because of turmeric, or is that because of a lack of would a mordant in that process make it sort of stick and stay? It's a good question. It's like the million dollar question, isn't it? Because I think it's, it's a really important thing to talk about. And I think natural dyes get a really bad name because of people who don't know what they're doing, putting things out there that look really exciting and then they all wash away to nothing. <laughs> yep. um, and yeah, there's lots of plants that get touted as, dye plants that I would say aren't actually dye plants, they're stains that fade. Um, right. And, but unfortunately, most a lot of those are plants that are very accessible to people, so they immediately grab them and they think they want to do some natural dyeing. So turmeric, I'd say, is turmeric is the top of the list in that way. Yeah. It's, it's a very vibrant, bright colour, but it um, fits in the category of a fugitive dye, which is the dye where you can't fix it will fade it will always fade and you can't fix the color there's nothing you can do to fix the color and fruits and vegetables also fit in that category so beetroot um any kind of berries that you might use blackberries or elderberries that way will all fade and they often they'll fade to a lovely gray which 
is has a value unto itself, but it's not going to be the color that it originally was. Mm-hmm. And then we have on the other end of the spectrum, we have some substan- substantive dyes, and these are plants where often mostly plants that are high in tannins that essentially create their own, uh, create and contain their own fixative. So like oak galls or walnut husks, um, very high in tannins and dark colours without need of any any mordant. But most mm-hmm. plants fit in the middle category. Most dye plants fit in the middle category of plants that um, will only be stable if a mordant is used. And where earth pigments are ancient and are very, very stable, so in your render, your lime render, if you're working on that earth pigment, you can be sure that that colour is going to stay and not change. Whereas if you're using a plant dye, it's never going to be 100% stable in the same way. Yeah. But there are tries and tests, just like we have vegetables, which are plants that have been bred for thousands of years to be delicious to eat. We also have dye plants that have been bred for thousands of years to have give vibrant and stable colours for dyeing. So like madder root, Rubia tinctoria, that's a plant that's been bred mostly in Asia and then more recently in Europe to give a strong and vibrant red colour. And that's going to be a lot more effective and be a lot more light fast than its native relative, which would be ladies' bed straw or wild madder that grows on the coast that will only ever give you a very pale pink that will fade a lot more quickly. So um, I think if you're looking for bright and vibrant dye plants, to use the plants that have been traditionally used and bred for dyeing before when when that was our only source of, of fabric colorants. Mm-hmm. So like um, weld and madder, indigo, dyer's marigold, dyer's chamomile, and often the plants that are good for dyeing contain the words tinctoria or tinctorum in the Latin name. Or they'll contain like rubia, or they'll contain Latin words for colour, and that implies that those plants have been used historically for dyeing, and they stood the test of time. And because there's a lot of kind of faddy plants that people use that um, are just they're just not going. They're just they're not really proper dye plants, but they. But also, it depends on what you want to do, because I think. Because I often make crayons with turmeric because it's so quick and easy and they're so effective. And you know, sometimes you're just doing want to do a quick little drawing. It doesn't matter if it's not permanent. I think it's mm-hmm. all about the intention of what you want to do and whether it needs to be permanent or not. Um, you know, in in some cultures, it was it's it's normal to re-dye clothes and to to not expect them to last forever. And I think this idea and expectation for permanence is partly a product of our culture and not something to be a slave to, but to be kind of, to be, to, to be pragmatic and think about does this need to be permanent or does it not need to be permanent? And why does it need to be permanent? Why do I need to make it last forever? Is not like, that's not, no, we live in a natural world, but isn't, um, doesn't where everything's always changing. So why are we trying to create permanence? Mm-hmm. I'm more interested in asking those questions than to, <laughs> personally and having those conversations than about trying to make everything permanent. Yeah. Great. I mean, that's, um, 
the the parallels between that and the sort of building world uh are are pretty strong you know there's there's great buildings in uh in north africa which are all made of mud and every year they have uh, a big festival where the whole sort of village will turn out and you know it's a big big event to replaster this building and it's actually a sort of celebrated thing that it's a you know renewed uh you know process a yearly process i think you know finding those reasons for sort of ceremony and uh and tradition are are, are like wonderful things that should be encouraged and not not sort of bred out of our society yeah absolutely that's that's it nail on the head and there's something of as well that yeah that culture of repairing and fixing and taking care of rather than expecting something to just be so resilient that it just takes care of itself indefinitely how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Thank you so much to Flora. That was so great. And the parallels between building uh, the way that I think we should be building and what she's talking about. There's just so many and it, it fits so perfectly. Do head to plantsandcolour.co.uk uh, or plantsandcolour on Instagram. Uh, that is the UK spelling of colour. So C-O-L-O-U-R uh, for our North American friends. Uh, yes, there's details. She's got online courses. You can go and do uh, courses in pretty much everything that we've we've discussed. All sorts of stuff. Really good website. So check that out. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. What else to tell you? Oh, yes, I have a spoon carving course coming up. My first one in, well, over a year. So I'm really looking forward to that. Looking forward to teaching a few more people the, the ways of, of wood carving. Um, that is at Winterbourne Barn in Bristol, and it's on the 22nd of May. Um, you can book through their website, which is winterbournebarn.org.uk. Yeah, and as as when I was looking on their, their events page, the very next course they're running is on the 26th of June, 
the day before my birthday. And it's about natural dyes with Rhiannon Hall. So uh, maybe you can get along to that. Okay, that's it. Uh, Subscribe if this is your first time. Make sure you check out other episodes. Do please get in touch. I've had a lot of people sending in emails. Um, They're really always wonderful to hear. But yeah, so thoughts, comments, questions and concerns, get them in. Um, That's. I think that's it. I hope you're all very, very well and looking forward to the world opening up a little bit more over the the next coming months. Um, That's it. Bye-bye. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.